And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. I have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that any unconfessed sins are dealt with. And then we will open in prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you that in eternity past you set forth such a magnificent plan based on grace. Grace means that you did all the work and that we do nothing. You have provided everything for us, and you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. There he paid the penalty for our sin, and on that basis he provided us with this fantastic spiritual life we have today. Father, as a result of our salvation, we're dwelt and filled with the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, our guide, the one who leads us into all truth. Now, Father, as we look at your word, we pray that as the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to the truth of your word, that we would be responsive and that we would see how to apply these things in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know that some of you get a chance to travel every now and then on an airplane. Others of you don't get that opportunity. One of the things that always sort of uh, a little boring routine when you get on an airplane is the uh, flight attendant have their little spiel, and they go through all of the um, all the different rules and regulations, what to do when the oxygen mask drops down, and the seat flotation devices, and where the emergency exits are. And everybody's usually doing something else. So every now and then you get a flight attendant with a sense of humor, and they'll start off there little spiel with something like this. There may be 50 ways to leave your lover, but there are only four ways to leave this airplane. (laughs) I've heard several of these at one time or another. One announcement went, weathered our destination is 50 degrees with some broken clouds, but we'll try to have them fixed before we arrive. Thank you. Remember, nobody loves you or your money like Southwest Airlines. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the bag over your own mouth and nose before assisting children or adults acting like children. As you exit the airplane, make sure to gather all of your belongings. Anything left behind will be distributed evenly among the flight attendants. Please do not leave children or spouses. This one was heard on a Southwest Airlines flight just after a hard landing in Salt Lake City. The flight attendant came on the intercom and said, uh, that was quite a bump, and I know what you all are thinking. I'm here to tell you that it wasn't the airline's fault, it wasn't the pilot's fault, 
It wasn't the flight attendant's fault. It was the asphalt. I just slipped that in there to see if anybody was listening this morning. After a real crusher of a landing in Phoenix, the flight attendant came on with, Ladies and gentlemen, please remain in your seats until Captain Crash and the crew have brought the aircraft to a screeching halt against the gate. Once the tire smoke is cleared and the warning bells are silenced, we'll open the door and you can pick your way through the wreckage to the terminal. And then part of a uh, flight attendant's arrival announcement, we'd like to thank you folks for flying with us today. And the next time you get the insane urge to go blasting through the skies in a pressurized metal tube, we hope you'll think of us here at U.S. Airways. It's always nice to get someone with a little sense of humor. Open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. This chapter is, this chapter and along with chapter 12, which is sort of the comment and consequence of chapter 11, go together as the climax of this section of John, which extends from back in chapter 6 all the way through as we have seen this continual conflict presented between Jesus and the religious leaders. The religious leaders have been continuously antagonistic to Jesus, and we have seen that antagonism increase. From back in chapter 5, when they determined that they would kill Jesus after he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on a Sabbath, up through this resuscitation of Lazarus in John chapter 11, this animosity has increased. We need to see how John is using that, and he is going to pull all of this together for us as a final indictment of the nation and the religious leaders. After chapter 12, we enter into the last week of Jesus' ministry on the earth prior to, prior to the crucifixion. So in this last section, we deal with, in verses, or excuse me, in chapters 11 and 12, we will deal with the resuscitation of Lazarus. Now we have to go back. We have to look at some of the um, some of the background and how John is developing his thematic structure. I think it's fascinating to see how John starts off with something in the very first chapter where he talked about Jesus being in him was life. That means in Jesus in his theanthropic person or really before he became a man in his eternal deity, life exists in him as a person, not as some abstract principle. See, one of the problems we have, I think as a result of our cultural heritage going back to Greek and Roman thought, is we tend to abstract certain things about God and the character of God. We think about the uh, attributes of God's character, the essence box, the ten attributes we usually focus on is sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, veracity, and immutability. We look at those almost as abstract principles. But these aren't abstract principles. God is a person. And these attributes express, in many ways, His person, but they don't exhaustively define his person because God is infinite so there is much more about God we will spend eternity 
learning about God because in his person he is infinite, so all of his attributes are infinite and as finite creatures, we cannot fully understand God. We can fully understand all that God has revealed to us about himself, but that is different from saying that we can fully understand God. And that's the problem as creatures in our autonomy and sinfulness. We want to put God in a box so we can really understand and control him. But we can't do that. We never can do that. That doesn't mean that God will do things apart from his revelation, as some people would have it. But that God will always act consistent with his revelation, but there is much more to God than simply what is revealed, for he is infinite, and we will spend eternity learning about that. So in his person, he is life, and in his person, as that person with whom we have now as believers a personal relationship, in his person he is light. And that light shines continuously in the world as part of God. The, the, the eternal, infinite God is, is uh, we use in theology, we use a couple of different terms to talk about the attributes of God. And we talk about the, the fact that he is, on the one hand, infinite, which expresses his incomprehensibility, and on the other side, that he is personal. A couple of other words that are used to describe this that are, are a little more abstract for people is the idea that he is transcendent, which means that he transcends the creation. He is beyond the universe. He is more than, than what can be encapsulated within the universe. He is outside all space and time. He is transcendent and he is Imminent, which means that he is also, that relates to his omnipresence, he is continually present to all of his creation. So that at every point in the universe, God is fully and totally present. Whether you're talking about the Andromeda galaxy so many light years away, or you are talking about a congregation meeting this morning in Los Angeles, or a congregation meeting here, God is equally and fully present to all of those points at the same time in the same way. And that goes beyond, we can understand what that means, but we can't fully comprehend that concept. So we can understand that the scripture teaches that, but we cannot fully comprehend what that means. In his eminence, God is personal. That means he is continually present to us as a person. There is not an abstract principle above and beyond God when there was nothing before Genesis 1-1, when there was no heavens and no earth, no space-time continuum. There was a person who existed in one essence but three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So the ultimate reality in the universe is not some abstract principle, which is what you'll find if you go back and you look at something like Greek mythology, or you look at a Greek statue of a Greek god, it's just this, this uh, uh, idol in stone that is unmoved and unmoving. What we have is the ultimate reality in the universe is a person. A person. And that person is, is part of his very personhood. He is life, and he is life, light. And as part of who he is... 
He continually wants to reveal Himself to His creature. And so we emphasize this, that God is not some being who has just created everything, wound it up like a watch according to deism, and then run off to the outer edges of the universe somewhere where He's doing something else. But He is intimately involved in everything that is going on in all of our lives as believers, as His children, and He is continuously revealing Himself to mankind throughout history. And we studied that in John chapter 1. Well, then in John chapter 3, and we've gone over this again and again, I just need to remind you, in John chapter 3, as the Apostle develops this theme of light, in John 3.19 he says, and this is the judgment that the light is come into the world, so that this light is come into the world, and the word that he uses is the Greek word chrysis for judgment, from it's the Greek from which we get our word crisis. And it indicates a judgment that there is a decision that is consequent to this breaking in of light in history, that you cannot simply remain neutral, that man, that fallen man has no position of neutrality, that continuously throughout history God is breaking in to human history. His revelation of Himself is continually available to every human being through the creation. This is Romans chapter 1, that His his attributes are continuously seen. Knowledge about Him is, is available to every human being. And His existence is even within every human being. And so because of this judgment, every single person is forced to make a decision for or against God. And at the moment of God consciousness, which we've studied, the age of accountability, people come to realize this truth that God exists and they have to make a decision whether or not they want to know more about this God or they reject Him. And they can go negative and be extremely religious and have, all, have their, their language just seasoned with God talk and religious language, and Jesus this, and God that, and go to church, and be involved in church activities, and be negative to God. And we've seen that with the Pharisees. These are some of the most religious people that have ever existed. And they knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, and their, their language, their activity, their behavior is just peppered with Religious verbiage. They they can't talk. They talk theology all the time. They pray seven times a day. Go to the temple three times a day. All of this activity. But they are, as we have seen, many of them are net, were negative to God and God consciousness. Jesus continually hit them with this that they did not even want to know God. So just because somebody's religious and talks a lot about God and uses God language doesn't mean that they're positive to God at all. On the other hand, you can have some people who seem to exemplify tremendous animosity to God and hatred to God's people and to the church to the point of being like Saul of Tarsus where they are on a crusade to destroy Christianity and yet they were truly positive to God at God consciousness and eventually they will hear the gospel and respond positively as did the Apostle Paul. So overt activity may have nothing at all to do with what's really going on in the core thinking, the cardia, the heart of an individual. 
And what happens is that in the process of the revelation of light, we see this decision that must be made. And John has been focusing on this all through this section. In fact, Jesus has said twice, I am the light of the world. And from chapter 7 on, this becomes a major theme is this light ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't escape it when we come to John chapter 11, because if you will look down to verse 9, Jesus will answer an objection from the disciples and say, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. And although Jesus is talking at one level physically, there is a deeper significance to what he is saying because he is what? He is the light of the world. And he's talking to the disciples about staying with the plan of God and being consistent in their walk with him. So even in this episode about the resurrection or resuscitation, and we'll get into the distinction between a resurrection and resuscitation in a minute, but the resuscitation of Lazarus, we will see that even this is exemplifying the message of Jesus being the light of the world, and this will be the final uh, straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak, in the resistance of the Pharisees and sets them on their final course of action to see that Jesus is executed. So we see throughout this the development of the theme of light and how that light not only draws those who are positive to, the, to Christ, but it also drives away those who are negative because it reveals all of their evil, all of their arrogance, all of their re- religiosity, and in the exposure of the light, you see all of their evil deeds manifested and it floats to the top like scum on a pond. The other thing that we see is that their religiosity has promoted an atmosphere of incredible fear in uh, Jerusalem. And legalism always promotes fear and hostility. And we've seen others who have been afraid, and in this passage, the disciples are going to be afraid so much so that they really don't want to follow the Lord because they're afraid that they might be arrested along with him and killed because of the hostility of the Pharisees. Now, when we come to this passage, we're going to see that this life-generating miracle, this resuscitation of the dead Lazarus, is going to exemplify for us this basic theme of light and darkness and that light is life because Jesus is light and because he is light, he is going to give life to Lazarus. He is demonstrating that he is the source of life, but it is this one area of life that man in their autonomy and in their fallen nature just continuously seek to try to control. We don't like the fact that we die. Death is the greatest threat to our autonomy because we know that our life is finite and we're going to die and people live in denial of death and they try to do so many things to avoid death. And it is in this one area as Jesus lives, as Jesus gives life to Lazarus, that he is going to show with this ultimate miracle that he is the Lord of life itself 
And this becomes the ultimate threat and calls forth and brings forth the greatest antagonism from those who have rejected the truth. And we see that if you look down to the reaction section of this chapter in verse 45, that what happens is when the Pharisees find out about this, look at verse um, uh, 47, the Pharisees get together and they convene a council, they convene literally the Sanhedrin, and they try to decide what are they going to do about this man because if he continues to do what he's doing, the Romans are going to come along, send an army down here and destroy us. So it is this miracle that establishes or sets up the context in which they make the final decision to make sure that he's arrested and destroyed. Another important thing we're going to see in this particular passage is an understanding of Jesus in his personhood as our high priest and his compassion with us. You see, Jesus today is no longer... Uh, he is still, in, according to the doctrine of hypostatic union, Jesus Christ is undiminished deity... Undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. That means from the moment of the incarnation throughout eternity, even at the right hand of God the Father, even when he returns on a white horse at the second coming, throughout the millennial kingdom and on into eternity, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. There never will be another time when Jesus Christ is not true humanity. And in his true humanity, he still has everything that makes him a human, including tremendous compassion for us in our weaknesses. Hold your place in John 11 and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Well, we're, I think what we will see in John 11 is going to give substance to what we read in Hebrews chapter 4. Because the Lord who performs this resuscitation in John 11 is the same Lord, the same Jesus, that is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4.14 Upon His ascension to the heavens, Jesus Christ became our great high priest. And so the writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been, and should be translated tested, but one who has been tested in all things as we are, yet without sin. And what that means is that Jesus Christ in his humanity while he was on the earth was tested in every category of testing possible. That doesn't mean that he went through every individual testing like every single one of us goes through but that he went through every category of testing and passed with an A++. He never sinned. He was impeccable. In his deity, he was not able to sin, but in his humanity, he was able not to sin because of his dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. But that's not just an abstract doctrine. And we can talk for a long time about the impeccability of Christ and non-posse peccari and posse non peccari and all the Latin terms and everything else. But the bottom line 
is how this affects us in the arena of our day-to-day life and, and testing and suffering and adversity. And in our prayer life, verse 16, let us therefore, this is the conclusion, because Jesus is who he is, because he is true humanity, because he has experienced what we're, we've experienced, because of his rich and deep compassion that goes beyond just simple, superficial, sentimental emotionalism, we have someone we can pray to. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we will see this exemplified in this episode with, with Lazarus. So turn back to John 11 and we'll start looking at the situation. Our Lord is just as concerned about us as He was the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus Christ is not this picture of some granite God who is unmoved by what happens in our life. He is personally involved. He is a personal God who cares deeply about everything in our lives. Now, just because Jesus is not doing what you think He ought to be doing in response to what's going on in your life, that doesn't mean that he is not concerned and intimately involved. See, so often what you have is in our shallow, sentimental Christianity is you hear people run around talk about how Jesus is doing this in my heart and he's doing that in my heart and all this heart language. And what the Scriptures present is Jesus is doing a tremendous amount for us and that's not how the Scripture presents it. The Scripture talks about how Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father how He is our advocate, how He is continuously interceding for us, and all of these other things that go far beyond this simple, subjective, sentimental emotionalism that is pop Christianity in America. Now we're going to, I'm going to make several side, side trips as we go through this to bring out a couple of uh, interesting observations. But we'll begin with the context, the situation. Verse 1. Now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, which is the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, we're told that Lazarus is ill. He lives in Bethany, which is, we would say, a suburb of Jerusalem. It's about two miles outside of Jerusalem, not as the crow flies, but as the foot walks. As you leave the gates of Jerusalem and head a little bit south, you have to go around the high ridge to the east of Jerusalem, which ultimately ascends to the Mount of Olives. And on the east, or south, really the southeast side of the Mount of Olives is a small village of Bethany. It's very close as a crow flies to Jerusalem, but because of the high ridge line, you have to walk around. And it's about two miles, so it would take about 30 to 40 minutes to uh, walk there. And this is where Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus lived. And apparently from all that we can uh, infer from the, the little bit we have in Scripture about this family, they were uh, fairly well-to-do, an upper-middle class, if not aristocratic family. And uh, we're reminded in verse 2 of something that doesn't take place in John until chapter 12. Isn't that interesting? He describes Mary so to his readers. This is the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment. Now, he hasn't told us about that event yet, but apparently he realizes that his readers 
are fully aware. They know who Mary is. They know about what she did in anointing the Lord's feet. So he identifies this Mary with the woman who anoints the Lord's feet with her hair and says that this is Mary and Martha. Now in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, we hear the story about Mary and Martha, and it is Mary who is sitting at Jesus' feet when he is teaching. Martha's in doing the dishes, and she's the one who comes out, and she gets aggravated with Mary. Why don't you help me clean house? And the Lord says, well, you just need to relax, Martha. Mary is taking care of the more important priority items here. And in that episode, we sort of get this view of Martha as not being as interested in doctrine as Mary is. But in this episode, it is Martha who comes running out to the Lord, and it's Mary who, who's sort of staying behind. So both sisters, I believe, are very positive to doctrine. And just because you had that one story in Luke 10 doesn't mean that Martha is just the superficial uh, sort of valley girl who doesn't care about doctrine. They both are very concerned about doctrine, and they're very close to the Lord. A certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, and it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And the sisters therefore sent to the Lord, sent a messenger saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now I want to stop there a minute, because we don't often think about the fact that the Lord in his humanity had some very close personal friends who were involved with his ministry. And Lazarus was one of his friends. It's one of his buds. They enjoyed relaxing together. I want to paint up, this is the Lord in his humanity. We, we have to get a real picture, I think, of the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity. He wasn't some reserved, stoic figure who was untouched and uninvolved with those around him. He is very close to those around him and has has deep personal relationships, not with everyone, but with a few. And Lazarus was one of those few. The Lord loved him. They had a close personal relationship. This is one of his very closest friends during the time that he was on the earth. And so the sisters remind him of this because they know that Jesus has healed the sick in the past and that Jesus can heal him from far away or from the present. They have been counted among his disciples through much of his his uh, ministry on the earth, and they have seen him cast out demon. They, they've known about him restoring sight to the blind man. They know what Jesus can do. They're confident that Jesus can heal him. And the subtext here is this is your friend. If you restore sight to a blind man, blind beggar whom you don't know, how much more will you heal your, one of your best friends? So there's an agenda working here. And I want you to realize that most people have an agenda when it comes to talking with the Lord. Maybe you haven't recognized that. But even in our prayers a lot of times, we have a subtext working that we really want God to do things our way and we're not ready to let the Lord do things His way. We see that in this, the same kind of analogy can be brought about when when you talk about anybody even in ministry. And throughout Jesus' life and His ministry, He always operated on a divine viewpoint agenda. 
He knew what God's plan was for his life, and he wasn't going to be distracted by other people's concepts of what his ministry was supposed to be like. He was continuously being pressured by people to act and perform a certain way. But because he understood doctrine and looked at his life from the framework of doctrine and the plan of God, he did not yield to that pressure that people put on him to act a certain way, respond a certain way, do certain things. Uh, The Pharisees thought he ought to be a political leader. Other people thought he ought to do different things. And he refused to yield to that pressure from people to perform according to human viewpoint concepts of ministry. For example, we saw that even with his mother in John chapter 2 when you had the uh, wedding feast. And she comes to him and says, well, son, we've run out of wine. And he says, well, woman, what is that to me? You know, she's got her agenda and he's saying, you know, I've got my timing and my plan and that's not my plan. So he's not yielding. He is, he's not hostile. He's not antagonistic. He's not unkind in the way he responds to that. But he avoids being pressured by people into performing according to a false agenda. Now, there's some important application from that principle. First of all, we need to realize that there's some of you, and I know some of you in your families, experience a certain degree of hostility and antagonism. What are you doing down there at that church? That's some kind of a cult. You're always there all the time. You go there for two hours on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, and um, uh, you make certain decisions based upon the fact that you need to make a, a learning doctrine a priority, and that goes against their agenda. They have an idea of how you ought to spend your time, how you ought to spend your money, how you ought to raise your kids, and how much time you should spend in church. And aren't you taking this just a little bit seriously? And, see, they're operating on a human viewpoint concept of what Christianity is. And if you yield to that pressure, then you're letting someone operating on a darkness agenda tell you, a child of light, how you ought to set your priorities. In contrast, you need to respond, as Jesus did, in kindness, but remain firm and follow the plan of God for your life. We can't yield to that. We often do. We never should. We should never give in to guilt feelings. You know, there's folks like parents and siblings sometimes who know just what buttons to push to make us feel guilty that we're down there at church all the time and we're not doing this or that or something else, spending time with them usually. And they are trying to make us conform to their human viewpoint agenda. The same thing happens with pastors. Missionaries, anybody in full-time Christian professional work comes under that same kind of pressure from sheep. People grow up in all kinds of church backgrounds and they have certain preconceived notions of what a pastor should do and what a pastor should look like and what a pastor should dress like and how they should walk and, and what missionaries should look like and what they do in their spare time and what pastors' wives should do or how they look like. Everybody's got these these concepts and these agendas. And yet the pastor, teacher, or evangelist, or whatever gifts may be exemplified, either as a pastor or a missionary, are spiritual gifts. They're not personality types. And I know lots of pastors, and they come in all kinds of personality types. And I know some pastors that would just... Now, you're a pretty grace-oriented crowd, but I know some pastors who would just shock you to the core of your being with the way they talk. 
they, they, they bother me a little bit too, but, but they come in all kinds of packages. There are some pastors who are, because the trend of their sin nature is towards asceticism, they tend to be a little holier than thou. And there are other pastors who have trends towards licentiousness and antinomianism. And see, they come in all kinds of packages. But sheep tend to have agendas for pastors. And so if you don't, you have a problem and, and uh, you come up sometimes and say something to me and I don't respond the way you think I should or say the words you think I should, then immediately he's uncaring. He's not sympathetic. He, he really doesn't listen. And, and I've heard that kind of thing before. I, I worked with a pastor one time and, and uh, a friend of mine used to say, well, getting close to him is like snuggling up with a porcupine. And, uh, and just a different personality type. He was, that pastor was very reserved and, uh, and didn't, wasn't, and didn't have a real effusive, warm personality. I know another pastor who, uh, uh, just exuded compassion. He had gone through some very difficult times in his life. And if you had, were going through difficulty, this guy just seemed to drip mercy and compassion. And he was also an excellent teacher, but we come in all kinds of different uh, packages. And the problem is that people always seem to have their concept and their idea that they want to impose upon people who are in the ministry. They have all kinds of false expectations and unreal expectations. And anybody going in the ministry needs to learn to develop somewhat of a tough skin and realize what their agenda is and what their focus is and go about that and not worry about the reaction that develops from people. Because they operate on often on subjective ideas. Well, he should have said this or he should have done that. And just think about how Mary and Martha felt. Here is Jesus, who was their close friend. He stayed in their house many times. And their brother has this fatal disease. And they send a message to Jesus. And Jesus gets it and he says, Lazarus is sick. Okay, thank you for the message. And he turns around and goes about his business and doesn't give it a second thought. And doesn't even decide to pick up, pack up his bags and head for Bethany for another two days. See, we would say, that's, that's cold. That, that's callous. That's uncaring. That's uncompassionate. But Jesus is operating on a divine viewpoint agenda. And people are often operating from a subjective experience. We want to have our problems dealt with and we want your attention now and we want your compassion now. And if you don't do what we want when we want it, then you're not caring and you're not compassionate. And in our sinfulness, we want to redefine these terms on the basis of our own agenda. And Jesus is not going to yield to that kind of pressure. People often think when they're operating on the sin nature, they're operating from self-absorption and so they react and they get into self-pity and then they start accusing this uh, pastor or minister of not being caring or whatever and it just escalates from one thing to another. And the same thing could have happened with Jesus. But Jesus has his own agenda and in spite of what people might think, in spite of these overt circumstances, Jesus loves Lazarus. And he loves Mary and Martha. And he has a profound, deep, infinite love because he is undiminished deity. And so because he loves them, he waits two days before he does anything. It is because he loves them that he does what he does. And the same thing is true about a pastor. The greatest way that a pastor 
can express his love for a congregation is to spend hours and hours and hours a week studying and thinking and teaching because when it comes right down to it, I can't be there to hold your hand when you go through adversity and suffering. I'm not going to be anywhere around. The only thing that's going to matter is the doctrine you have in your soul. Now, I remember growing up and and going to Christian camps and singing all kinds of great songs, and I know all kinds of great songs. You'd be amazed at some of the stuff I've sung and what I've done in the past. It's great fun. But I've also gone through some really deep testing and adversity in life, and no matter how wonderful those times were and how great those Christian friends were, what got me through the hard times was the doctrine that was in my soul, not the good times we had and not the fellowship we had. Because that's all that matters is what's in our soul. So that's a pastor's primary responsibility. And what's happened in so many churches is that you get this idea that what makes the pastor the pastor is that he's out there holding everybody's hands. He's down at the hospital doing visitation. And he's there when, when your kid gets arrested because he went out and he was get, buying uh, drugs and got picked up in a sting. And so the pastor comes down and holds your hand. That's not the pastoral ministry defined in Scripture. The pastor's job is to study and teach the Word because he feeds the entire flock with doctrine so that they can have the spiritual nourishment and strength necessary to then handle those situations without leaning on the crutch of somebody else. And that's the best way for a pastor to express his, his particular spiritual gift and his love for the congregation. Now, Jesus waits... He hears the message, and we see in verse 4, When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, when he says this sickness is not unto death, he knows what's going to happen. Jesus Christ is fully God. He's undiminished deity, and he's still omniscient. His omniscience is still working, even though he is not using it independent from the Father's plan for the Incarnation. He is still omniscient. He knows what he's going to do. And this doesn't surprise him. He's known from all eternity that Lazarus was going to die. And there is a plan and a purpose for Lazarus' death. Now, if we forget that Jesus is omniscient, we're going to miss so much of what happens in this particular episode. He knows he, has, he will die physically, but that he will be resuscitated. And that this is to demonstrate the glory of God and the glory of himself as the eternal second person of the Godhead. And then John reminds us in verse 5 of Jesus' relationship with the family. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, what we expect is now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he left to go take care of the family. But that's not what we read. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. John is making a point here, just sort of reaches out and grabs us by the collar. That Jesus is not doing what we think he ought to do. He is doing what he knows he should do to demonstrate what he wants. He's operating on the Father's plan. And then finally in verse 7 he says, Then after this he said to the disciples... Let us go to Judea again. After this, he's waited two days, and he continues his ministry. He's in Perea, which is the region across the Jordan. It's a good day's journey. 
So it took a day for the messenger to get there. He waited two days, and then it takes him a day to get back. That's four days. Lazarus died apparently just after the messenger was sent. And according to uh, Jewish law, he was in the grave by sunset probably because in the warm environment of Judea, a body would start decomposing fairly rapidly. So they would have uh, embalmed him. They didn't really embalm him. They would have wrapped him in the burial cloth and put all the various uh, spices in and then put him in the cave, uh, which was, he had a tomb that was carved out of the rock face. Being a wealthy family, it would have been an individual tomb. And they put him in there, was not far from where they lived. And then they covered it. So the funeral's over with. Uh, by the end of the day that he dies, and then Jesus finally shows up on the fourth day. But look at the response to the, of the disciples. The disciples also know Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They've had a relationship with them over the years. And they, they show no compassion whatsoever. They don't know what the agenda is, because these guys are t- tuned out. They're, they're just concerned about saving their own hides. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Now, wait a minute, Lord. Let's, let's think about this. Now, it's all well and good that your friend Lazarus is sick, but there, there's a warrant out for our arrest, and the punishment is death. And we're going to get caught up in this same dragnet with you, and if you're going to get picked up, they're going to pick us up. And wait a minute, we ought to think about this just a little bit, because we really don't want to get thrown in jail just yet. Those guys want our hides. And then Jesus responds in verse 9, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, a surface meaning of this is that you really don't want to walk around at night in Israel. It would be like walking around out here very rocky. It's a different kind of rockiness. It's limestone, so there's a lot of caves and pockets of caves, which is where they would uh, bury people. But you wouldn't walk around at night because you can't see where you're going, and you'll slip on the rocks and fall and break your ankle, break a leg, sprain, sprain your ankle, uh, whatever it might be. So that's the surface meaning. You really don't walk around at night, and we don't want to travel from here back to Bethany at night because we could cause ourselves serious personal injury. That's the surface meaning, but there's an analogy here. The analogy is that we need to, uh, the, that while the He is the light of the world, we have illumination to God's plan. And so we know what God's plan is because I'm here and I have revealed God's plan. If you walk in the day, that is, if you're walking in the plan of God, then you won't stumble. So this is not going to be a mistake to go back. We're not going to stumble by going back, even if that means getting arrested and losing our life. That's the subtext. See, sometimes we think that if we do something that's God's will and something negative happens, then it wasn't God's will. But sometimes it's God's will for us to be like the Apostle Paul and be beaten and be thrown in jail and to be shipwrecked. And for most Christians, if they went through all of the heartache and adversity and opposition and suffering that the Apostle Paul went through and that he outlines, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 3 or 2 Corinthians 4, they would conclude, 
before they got very far down that path that maybe this really isn't God's will for my life. I mean, if God wanted me here, I wouldn't be shipwrecked, thrown in jail, beaten within a, uh, an inch of my life and all of these other negative things and go through all this hostility. But God says, no, that is my plan. So that's what Jesus is saying is if you're in the plan of God, you're not going to stumble no matter what might happen. But if you're walking in the night, if you're walking in darkness and carnality on the basis of the, of the sin nature, you're going to continually stumble because you're not operating on truth. In verse 11 he says, in conclusion, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now this word fallen asleep is a euphemism that's only applied to believers. Believers do not die. They fall asleep in the Scriptures. Over and again, whenever it talks about a believer dying, it says they fall asleep. Why? Because it's not permanent. We do not die. We have, at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, we are given eternal life. That life continues at the moment of physical death. We're still fully alive. We're just absent from the physical body and face to face with the Lord. But we never die. The body goes into the grave, but it will be resuscitated and it will be resurrected and we will receive a new resurrection body at the rapture. So he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of his sleep. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to recover. And the reason is you've got to understand something about Jewish medicine at that time, that according to the, the Jews, that sleep was one of the signs of recovery from illness and restoration to life. So they're saying, okay, he was sick, but if he's asleep, Lord, that means he's going to pull out of it. And he's going to recover. And then the Lord says, clarifies what he means in verse 13, that he's speaking about death, not literal sleep. That he is physically dead and in the grave. So he has to make it clear to them. Lord, I mean, he says, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you might believe but let us go to him. In other words, there is a point to this miracle now to make sure that the that the uh, excuse me the disciples understand who Jesus Christ is and his power as the light and life of the world. And look at Thomas's response in verse 16. This is doubting Thomas, but he's not doubting here. Although there is an undercurrent, I think, of fatalism almost turns to his fellow disciples and says, let's go that we may die with him. There's a heavy foreshadowing here because almost all the disciples are martyred. But they're ready, okay, let's go with him that we may die as well. Verse 17, now, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already, he, that is Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Notice, it is the Jews. All throughout this gospel, the Jews is a technical term for the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are hostile to Jesus. This is not a friendly group of people. It's not just talking about the fact that they happen to be ethnic and religious Jews. It is a technical term throughout the gospel for the Jewish religious leaders and the religious crowd that is hostile to Jesus. But they're not hostile to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, even though they're disciples of Jesus. So apparently they haven't been kicked out of the synagogue yet, and they still have a good reputation in the synagogue. And they come out in fulfillment of the Jewish ritual for 
for bereavement. They would come out, there would be hired mourners who would weep and wail and scream and cry, and they're very demonstrative. Jews are very emotionally demonstrative people. Now, now those of us who are from a white European background aren't quite as emotionally demonstrative, and sometimes we have a problem with that because it's almost scary, and somebody gets a little emotional in church, and we think that, oh, no, they're going to start speaking in tongues. But that's not always true, and I've been in a lot of churches, I've been in some recently, where there's a lot of exuberance. And it's, it's fun. That's just not our culture. And this was their culture. They would just weep and wail and cry, and they were very demonstrative and overt in the expression of their, of their emotion. So the Jews are out there, all the hired mourners are out there, and to us it would almost look like some kind of a circus is going on with all of this uh, emoting and crying and weeping and wailing and everything else. So the Jews had come out to console Mary and Martha concerning their brother. Verse 20, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she ran to meet him. Now, here she's the initiator, as opposed to Mary. She goes out to meet Jesus, and Mary remains in the house. Martha, therefore, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, here she's simply expressing her faith in the Lord. It hasn't been shattered by the fact that he didn't show up. She says, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died because you could have healed him. And that's all she's saying. She, this isn't, she is not insulting Lord. She said, where were you? If, she's not saying that. She's just expressing the fact, Lord, if you'd been here, he would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God... God will give you. And here we see the positive aspect to her faith. She knows that whatever God's will is, that, Je- that Jesus can fulfill it. But she doesn't know what that is. She doesn't have a clue. And I don't think she's even thinking resurrection. Jesus is not the only... He, he raised the widow's son, the widow of Nain. He raised the, the widow's son from the dead. But that was... He had just died. I mean, Lazarus is in the grave for four days. She has no comprehension there's no historical precedent for this. There is no ex- nothing in her experience or anything in the Old Testament to give her an understanding that Jesus can go call Lazarus out of the grave. She thinks it's all over with. And Jesus says to her, your brother shall rise again. Now, the reason I could say what I just said is because of the way Martha responds in verse 24. After Jesus said he will rise again, which he's virtually telling her, I'm getting ready to bring him out of the grave, she doesn't comprehend that. That just goes right past her and she says, yes, Lord, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection of the last day. She's thinking totally in terms of eschatology. I know that when you come back, we're all going to rise from the dead. She is not thinking about a resuscitation from the grave here and now. The difference between a resuscitation and a resurrection is in a resurrection you get a new body that will never die or suffer corruption again. In resurrection, I mean in resuscitation, you have died, like Lazarus, the widow's son, widow's son of the Old Testament, the widow from Nain. Uh, If you um, are resuscitated, you're simply brought back to life but you still have a mortal body that will suffer corruption and die physically again. So she has no comprehension that resuscitation is about to take place. And then Jesus says to her in verse 25, I am, this is his last statement, ego and me, I am the resurrection and the life. So both objects 
apply. I am the resurrection. I am the life. He is saying two things. He is resurrection in his person, in the person, in the infinite, undiminished deity, true humanity of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. In his person, he is life. John said it at the beginning. He is life. And in, he says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. He who believes in me, and here he uses that same construction that John uses throughout the gospel. The verb is pistuo, P-I-S-T-E-U-O, plus the preposition ace, E-I-S, which expresses the object of faith. So we are to believe something, which means to accept something is true. The only thing you can believe ultimately is a proposition, a statement. All belief has as its object something that is expressed propositionally. To express a proposition entails the intellect. Faith is and belief is an intellectual operation, a cognitive function. It is not emotional. You, do, you can't even comprehend a proposition with your emotions. You comprehend a proposition and the proposition is that Jesus Christ... Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that He died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. We'll see that in this passage. He who believes in Me shall live even if He dies. He will live eternally even if you die physically because you're immediately absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, and your soul, the real you, never goes to sleep. It never ceases existence. It never goes into some sort of soul sleep or soul slumber. It's immediately in the presence of God never dies. Verse 26, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He immediately brings it home to her. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed. And it's a perfect tense verb. It's a perfect active indicative which indicates that it's something that happened in the past that results that go on. And she's emphasizing the present results of a past action. She has already believed. She says she is saying, I am a believer. I have believed in the past with results that go on. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now what does John say in John twenty thirty one? These are written that you might believe that Jesus is what? The Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So in the Gospel of John the object is the proposition. The object of faith is the proposition that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you believe that He is the Messiah, the Old Testament, the predicted Messiah from the Old Testament, which includes within that whole framework the fact that He would come to die as a substitute for the sins of the world, Isaiah 53, if you believe that, then you will have eternal life, and that's all there is to it. Well, Martha believes that. That you are the Christ, the Son of God, even He who comes into the world, the Incarnation. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went away and she called Mary her sister, saying secretly, the teacher. No, she calls him the teacher. She doesn't call him rabbi. One of the important things to note about this entire episode is the significance that is brought out by the Holy Spirit of Jesus' relationship to Mary and Martha as women. In the Jewish common practice, uh, a rabbi would never talk to a woman. 
A rabbi was forbidden to talk to a woman. He couldn't even talk to his own wife when they were walking down the street if they were out in public. Because somebody might not know that was his wife. And they might get the wrong idea. See, that's where legalism goes. And so, a rabbi, they had a low view of women, but Jesus would talk to them, talk to women, which elevates them and shows that women are equally in the image of God with man. In fact, we can go back into the Old Testament, and we can see how the emphasis is that one of the ways the Holy Spirit rewards women in a theology of womanhood in the Bible is through their remembrance in Scripture. If we had time, we would go look at Proverbs chapter 31, which talks about the godly woman. And it outlines the various values that God esteems in a spiritually mature woman. And not only does it emphasize her testimony in the home, which is to be the primary arena of responsibility for the woman, but she is also praised for her operations outside the home, for she, she takes care of the, the, her husband, she takes care of the children, and then she's also involved in buying and selling outside the home. She has a business, and she is accumulating uh, wealth for the family, and so that woman is to receive praise for her work. And this is exemplified in the New Testament. And, uh, for example, in, in Luke 1, it is Mary, the mother of Jesus, that is praised throughout uh, all of history because of her role in the Incarnation. Not because she was God, not because she's the co-redemptrix, not because she is without sin, but simply because in her humanity, and she had a sin nature, in her humanity, she was the mother of Jesus, and because of her maturity and her relationship to the Lord, that is rewarded, and she is praised in Scripture for all time. Uh, Mary and Martha are all also uh, praised in Scripture for all time, and so what their spiritual life is, is uh, uh, revealed to us in the Scriptures and throughout all the 2,000-plus years of church history, we are uh, aware of their role and their response to the Lord. So she goes to call Mary, and she refers to Jesus not as rabbi, but as teacher, because a rabbi would not spend the time with, with them that Jesus does. So she, you, that word teacher is used to exemplify that or to emphasize that. Now we read in verse 30. Jesus had not yet come into the village. He's trying to stay away from these crowds, all the, all the noise that's going on and all of the uh, uh, mourners and the weeping and wailing and screaming. And uh, he's, he waits outside the village to have a private time with the sisters. Verse 31, the Jews then who are with her in the house, they're with Mary in the house, they see her get up and leave, so they follow her out to the tomb. Verse 32, therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice she says the same thing that Mary said. She is expressing her faith. She's, it's not a criticism. Verse 33, this is where we see the compassion of the Lord for our circumstances. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping... And the Jews who came with her also weeping. I find that fascinating. He's looking at Mary, whom he loves, whom he loves, 
and then the Jews who are hostile to him, and they're weeping. He looks at both the believers and the unbelievers, and he is deeply moved in spirit and trouble. Well, we have to stop a minute and take a look at some of these words that are used here. First of all, it says that he was deeply moved in spirit. And this is the Greek word, embramaomai. E-M-B-R-I-M-A-O-M-A-I. It is, it means to groan, it means to be angry, it means to speak harshly, to rebuke. It's a, it's a very intense word. And I think what it means here, the basic nuance here is that deep in his soul and spirit, Jesus is in his he is angry. This is a righteous anger about the whole scenario. Not because they're weeping, not because they're emotional, but because of the misery and pain that they're experiencing because of sin. You see, and I always bring this out when I when I do a funeral. Sin is not normal. Sin is not God's plan for the human race. It's God's permissive plan for the human race, but not His original plan for the human race. God created man without sin. The punishment for sin is death. So all of the suffering, all of the misery that we experience in life, and at the time of death, all of the grief that we experience is a reminder to us that this isn't normal. This was not what God intended. This is abnormal. This is the penalty for sin. And so death and grief is miserable to remind us of the misery of sin. And when Jesus looks out on the multitude... He sees the misery, the horrible circumstances that they're going through, the suffering, the adversity because of sin. And he is angry because of sin. This is what is moving him, is the whole scenario. This is not what he originally intended as the creator of the heavens and the earth. So he is angry and he is secondly troubled in spirit which is the aorist active indicative of terasso t a r a s s o which means that he is deeply and powerfully troubled and moved i mean as the lord he is he he is in his humanity he has emotion and he is very moved by compassion for the misery that he sees in front of him, both for the believers and for the unbelievers. And because he is deeply moved in spirit and troubled, he weeps in verse 35. See, they come on, they say, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus weeps. See, there's a distance between 33 and 35, but there's a connection in the syntax because of his what happens when he sees everybody in verse 33 he weeps and the word for weeping there is the greek word dakruo d a k r u o which means simply to weep to cry jesus is just standing there and tears begin to flow 
and stream down his face. And this is in contrast to what we've seen with all the professional mourners and everybody else, even Mary and Martha, because they expected her to be going down to the tomb to cly, to clio, K-L-A-I-O, which means to cry out, to beat your breast. It's a very demonstrative, screaming, weeping, wailing kind of thing. Whereas Jesus is a very deeply moved. He just looks at the crowd and he just begins to weep. There's no overt scene. He's not making a scene. He's not beating his breast. He's not going through all these things. He is just so deeply moved at our sinfulness, at at the pain and the misery that is the consequence of man's condition in sin that he weeps. He's not grieving for Lazarus. In his omniscience, he knows that in five minutes, he's going to say, Lazarus, come. And Lazarus is going to have to come out of the tomb. He knows that, that he's going to spend all eternity with his friend Lazarus and his deity and his omniscience and omnipresence. He knows he's going to be with Lazarus. He, this hasn't, he hasn't been divorced in his relationship from Lazarus. There's no sense of loss here. So we can't read that. Jesus isn't weeping because he's grieving for the loss of Lazarus. Jesus is weeping because his God in his righteousness and his justice, he has compassion for the fallen condition of the human race. And he sees our pain and our misery and our suffering. And he is not a high priest that is untouched. He's not like some Greek god cast in marble who's just frozen there. But he is deeply moved by the sin and the suffering in our lives. Now the Jews completely misread that because they're spiritually dead. And they say, behold how he loved them. But others of them, notice how John continually, the light divides. There are those who respond correctly and those who reject him. But some of them say, could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man from dying? See, they're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, God, he's, he's, he's God. He, he's done all these other miracles. Why can't he do something? See, they're already thinking. There's this one group that's positive, and they're beginning to think rationally, objectively, and doctrinally. say, could this man, he's opened the eyes of the blind, he could do this. And so Jesus, therefore, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. There's a stone. He says, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, says, Lord, by this time, I love the King James, he stinketh. Verse 39, there'll be a stench, Lord. Now, why is she saying that? Well, there's a couple of reasons she could be saying. We're not really sure from the text. One could be that she's concerned that the Lord will not... um, become ceremonially unclean by touching a dead person. See, the Jews believed that it was on the fourth day that the soul finally left the body. And so this is the fourth day. And that's when corruption really began. And if he touched a dead body, then he would be ceremonially unclean. And so she's concerned about his person. Lord, you don't want to get involved with this corrupt dead body. We want to keep you apart from that because you are who you are. So she could be thinking very doctrinally there. Uh, she could also be concerned about the fact that, that while well, corruption set in, so there's really nothing you can do about it. But Jesus says to her, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you heard me always. See, he doesn't just learn this. His omniscience is still in operation. He's always known that the Father heard him. But because of the people standing around it, I said this. 
that they may believe that you sent me. So the whole purpose, he doesn't do this just to get Lazarus back. He's not out here because, golly, I've lost my friend and I want him back. There's a purpose to this. Jesus doesn't go around raising everybody from the dead or healing everybody. In fact, when, he gets to, when we get down to verse 43, he has to start his statement, Lazarus, because if he just said, Dute, come forth, everybody would have come forth. So he has to say, Lazarus, or the, the cemeteries are going to empty. So he says, Lazarus, come forth. And then he who died came forth. He's still bound hand and foot. He's just kind of you know, waddling out of the, uh, the cave because he's all wrapped in the, in the um, grave clothes. He's wrapped from head to foot. His face is wrapped, so he can't even see where he's going. He's just sort of stumbling, bumbling his way out of the cave. And then Jesus gives the command to unbind him and let him go. In English, we lose it. It says, Lazarus, come forth. But in Greek, it's very precise. It's just, Lazarus, come. Now. And so, out Lazarus comes. And then the Holy Spirit just closes the curtain. We don't see anything more. Wouldn't it be great to know what happened? What did they say? What did they do? What did Lazarus say? I mean, what's his out of... Now, this is somebody... Don't believe all the other stuff you hear. This is somebody who had a real death experience. He didn't have a near-death experience. Wouldn't that be interesting to sit down and talk to Lazarus and say, Well, what happened? What was it like? What happened during those four days? What did your soul see? But the Holy Spirit closes the curtain. That's not for us to know. And then we see the response and the reaction. Verse 45, Many therefore of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done believed in him. So once again, we see that there's this positive response to Jesus. But then there is also the reaction of the darkness. But some of them went away to the Pharisees, and then the Pharisees are going to react, and that's where we'll pick up next time. So we see in this that the truth of God's Word always divides. And the Gospel always drives people to a decision to accept Christ or to reject Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this time together. This morning we pray that You would challenge us with the things that that we have learned. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here without faith, without hope, without a certainty of eternal life, that they would have clearly come to understand the gospel this morning, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, that he who raised, raised Lazarus from the dead, he who resuscitated Lazarus is the resurrection and the life. And all we have to do is believe in him and we will have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned, that we may see how they apply in our own lives and our own thinking. In Jesus' name, amen.